You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. How y'all doing this morning? I was, that was solid. See, I like, I like that. I like you woke up on the right side of the bed this morning. If you woke up on the right, on the wrong side, and we're here to help you get on the right side. All right. Um, well, anyway, whether you're, you're wrong side or right side, I pray again that by the time we're done here, you will uh, walk away on the right side worshiping uh, Jesus, because right now we're continuing our time in worship uh, through spending time in the word of God. All right. And so uh, I, for those of you that don't know me, I think everybody here does know me. If you're like tuning in right online later or something like that. My name is Josh. Uh, I serve as the lead pastor here uh, at Refuge. Uh, this week, we're continuing a sermon series that we started a couple of weeks ago entitled Follow Me, uh, where we're focusing on the rhythm of discipleship. Uh, you may be asking, like, what do you mean by the rhythm of discipleship? And here's what I mean. Uh, if you haven't noticed, life is slowly but surely getting back to normal. Now, what I'm not saying here uh, is that life is back to normal. I think, granted, our, everything that's happened over the past couple of weeks with uh, some COVID surges and all that uh, clearly tells us that life is not back to normal, but, but that it's a gradual process, right? That we can take a couple of steps forward and one step back, but gradually things are getting back to normal. And uh, as things gradually get back to normal, we are reinserting ourselves back into normal rhythms in our lives, uh, rhythms of friendship, rhythms of going back to the office for work, rhythms uh, of social lives, right? Hanging out with friends or family. Yet in the midst of all that excitement, uh, it's easy to lose track of the fact that we also have spiritual rhythms that we're called to return to. And so a few weeks back, we started a, uh, a string of sermon series focused on spiritual rhythms that we're called as we're reentering back into a kind of normal life to reinsert ourselves back into. Last time, uh, the last series, the first one that kicked us off uh, was a series entitled Together Again, where we focused on community and gathering and what that means and why it's important. Uh, and today, we're continuing our sermon series called Follow Me, where we're looking at the rhythm of discipleship. Now, I use that word, hear me, and I know uh, that a lot of you guys are like discipleship, and now there's a bunch of different diverse responses to this idea, right? Some of you are thinking like, okay, why? Well, I mean, I... That's for like advanced Christians, right? Like the advanced Christians, they're the ones that do discipleship and they like get together and they do like weird Bible studies. And it's like a little mini cult within the, the, the church, right? Well, well, that's, I don't want to say it's a cult, but I will say that rhythm is a part of discipleship. And, and some of you are saying, well, isn't discipleship basically just relationships, right? Getting together. And we talked about that last time. And yeah, that's, that's true, but that's not quite what we're talking about. And some of you are just like, I don't know what discipleship is. I've never heard of that. Um, but uh, in Scripture, the fundamental idea of discipleship is asking this question, what or who are you following? What or who are you following? More fundamental than actions, more fundamental than weekly meetings, discipleship at its core is the reality of following someone or something and inviting that person or that thing 
to basically influence your values, your priorities, um, what you, you emphasize in your life, your rhythms, everything about your life. And we do this in every area of our lives, in our professional lives, in our home lives, in our social lives. Yet when we started this series, one of the things we picked up on uh, is that as we accept the call to follow Jesus, similar to Peter and Andrew to John and James in Matthew chapter 4, we set down every other rhythm of our life and follow Jesus, submitting ourselves in humility, saying, Father, whatever you desire to do in my life, however you want to reorganize my priorities, reorganize my values, you have the space to do that. I am yours. That's what discipleship looks like. And it happens in every area of our lives. And today, the area of life that we're going to be emphasizing and talking about is actually work. How to be a disciple of Jesus at work. And here's why that's tricky, why that's challenging. Because whether you're staying at home with kids or maybe you're in sales talking to people that you don't know, or maybe you work for a mission-based type of nonprofit organization, right? Or maybe you're working in an office. No matter how you put your hand to the plow, no matter how you work, the idea of work and the experience of work presents some unique challenges. It presents some unique challenges that if we don't... uh, allow the Lord to guide how we are navigating and and, and tackling those challenges, if they're left unchecked, they can leave us questioning our competence, our worth, our purpose, our calling. And here's the thing, it's a serious matter. I'm not saying like, oh, this is something that you just got to find another job. Oftentimes when you're experiencing uh, difficulty with work, people be like, oh, you just got to find what you want to do. Find a thing that's not work. It's a career because you love to do it. But, But that's harder said than done, right? In fact, in 2017, the British Broadcasting Network wrote an article uh, talking about the average time workers between the ages of 24 and 35 spent at one job. And the average time ended up being just under three years. That was the average, turning around every three years to find another space. And often what propels these switches is a mixture of several factors, but one that stuck out was the reality of dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction at work. Half of all people polled said they experienced dissatisfaction at work. And they would take a new job with new perks and better work-life balance if they could find it. So it's good to know that half of the people working, wherever you're working right now, are thinking like, man, if I find something better, I'm out of here. All right? Like, it's good to know. It's good to know. And 80%, in addition to that, 80% of people believed they had gained weight as a result of working where they worked. Right. Because of stress, because of a sedentary lifestyle, all these different things that contributed to almost 80 percent of people looking at their job and thinking the reality and environment of this place has caused me to even like gain weight or, or to become unhealthy. And a concerning stat, maybe, maybe even above all these or to couple with them, is that nearly one in two people polled derived their sense of identity from work. That was just the ones that even knew what the heck that meant, too. Remember, that's one half of people said, yes, I I derive identity from work. And the other half probably was like, I don't really know what that means, so I'm going to say no. So reality is more like 75, 80% probably like, yeah, I am what I do. Think about that. What happens when people dissatisfied with work, they only stay for a few years, are always looking for something new, and feel that their job can hurt them, derive value, dignity, purpose from that very job? What happens? 
It creates a swath, a, a group of people that are largely dissatisfied, not just with their job, but are dissatisfied with their lives, with who they are, their capabilities. Maybe you relate to some of this. Maybe you relate to this feeling of dissatisfaction. But here's the thing. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're on the other side and you're like, man, I, don't, I mean, I feel pretty successful. I make good money. I feel confident about what I do. And, and maybe all of a sudden, if you're not careful and you derive value and purpose from that side of your experience with work, there's like some pride and some arrogance bubbling up there. One that only needs one moment, one prick from a needle of, of difficult circumstances to explode and leave your identity crashing uh, like the crypto market over the past nine. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know somebody was like, word, preach. What happens when we find these spaces, right, where we're desperately trying to get out of this purposeless environment? We start to escape it, right? Respect to all my teachers out here, if we got any. Uh, but I've been to them Friday afternoon teacher happy hours that happen every single week, right? Like, right? like you start being like, I got to get out of here somewhere. I got to go find some joy and some value and, and something somewhere else. And if you ain't never been to one of them happy hours, don't ever, it'll ruin your childhood forever. So just don't go. Don't go. Yet the scriptures, the gospel invite us to see work. Hear me. Look at me differently. They invite us to see work in light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus has done for us, telling us to derive our value, to derive our dignity from somewhere else, but to also allow that experience to begin to redefine work, to begin to redefine results, and to let that redefinition motivate us to work well and to work hard. That's what today's about. It's about understanding how the gospel invites us to be a disciple of Jesus in our work. And the point that I want us to take away today is this. And I don't think I made a slide for this, so you're just going to have to and you just, have to just really listen to me, all right? Uh, it, the point I want you to take away today is this. Only understanding our work in light of the good news of Jesus allows us to see the meaning in everything we do. Only understanding our work in light of the good news of Jesus allows us to see the meaning in everything we do. To do this, we're going to be taking a look at Colossians 3, 23 through 25, what our sister Virtuous read. And we're going to be addressing two ideas during our time in the text. The first, we're going to take a look at God's design for work. God's design for work. And maybe taking a look at how our, our, our design for work differs a little bit. And then we're going to take a look at God's call in work. What is he calling us to do in work? Is it just to put our hand to the plow? Is there something more going on when when we're working and in, in, in God's design for work, there's something more that he's calling us to than just, just working, just providing, just making a paycheck. And so to do this, to dive in today, we're going to go ahead and read Colossians 3, through 25 again. Um, and then after that, we're going to say a short prayer. Uh, I believe it'll be on the screen. If you can't see it because of my ginormous head, please, I hope you have like a, a phone or Bible. Uh, but 322 starts like this. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, uh, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no 
favoritism. As we begin, if you would join me in this prayer uh, with an oldie but goodie prayer from the Anglican tradition. Uh, It goes, Father, what we know not today, teach us. What we have not, Father, give us. What we are not, make us. Uh, For your son's sake, amen. Amen. All right. All right, before we jump into the text, we have to first uh, do a little bit of, little bit of uh, prep work, a little housework. Or right, we got to understand the context that we're reading from. Without the context, it loses some of the juiciness. We say this every week. If you don't go and investigate the Bible and, and really unravel all the things that are going on, because the Bible is written for us, but it's not written... Oh, wow, let's go. All right, then all of a sudden, we begin to adopt an idea from reading a text like this. It just goes, oh, yeah, work like to God. When really there's a lot more going on. And so we want to spend a second kind of setting the scene. Colossians, all right, what we're reading today is a letter written from the Apostle Paul uh, to a church in a more like a town called Colossae, which is in modern day Turkey. Uh, In this letter, Paul addresses a heresy or a teaching that's contradictory uh, to sound Christian doctrine. Uh, And he does it not by directly contradicting the false teaching, by basically just looking at it and being like, hey, here's the false teaching and this is wrong. Rather, he does this uh, by building for the Colossian church a beautiful display of the gospel by building up the person of Jesus in an effort to draw their attention away from the sound, the, the the heresy, the, 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 the unsound, contradictory teaching, and draw their eyes toward the beauty of Jesus and what he's actually done for us, allowing their heart, not their mind just to be persuaded, but their heart to actually worship Jesus, to actually fall in love with Jesus. And after painting this powerful picture of the gospel and inviting this level of worship and affection, in the third chapter, he begins to give instructions about a godly household, connecting, right, this good news of Jesus and what Jesus has done and how it should change our lives, how it should shape our lives, shape how we act, how we live in every member of the household. So he starts with wives, and he moves on to husbands, and then he moves on to children, and then he moves on to slaves. And this is why I know i got to take a second uh, to help us parse this word out. Because that word slave is a hard word for us, right? It's a hard word for us. And instantaneously, it derives pictures of the old American South, right? Hate-fueled, uh, chattel slavery of early America, uh, this kind of race-centered, almost caste system version uh, of slavery that we universally condemn that we universally hate, uh, that just the word slavery kind of just uh, just disgusts us and we just push anything with the word away and go, that right there is malarkey. I don't know what the word, um, but right, that right, I just don't want any of that. And so we push it away. And in order to dive into text, we have to understand this truth and we have to get comfortable with this word for a few minutes. And so I want to start and allow us to do that by simply letting you know this idea of slavery that we're reading about is just not that I can't really tell you uh, in, in without spending like 30 minutes going over but it's just not that slavery in ancient Rome hear me wasn't racial at all ethnicity didn't have anything to do with it in fact there's documentation of black Roman citizens owning white slaves during this time Slavery had nothing to do in this time with kind of the hate-fueled, race-based idea of slavery that comes to our mind when we hear the word slave, right? Rather, slaves were just a part of the natural economy of the ancient world. 
They, they oftentimes were taken from foreign nations as prisoners of war, uh, as traitors to foreign nations. Uh, they were oftentimes like sold as a result of uh, pirated sea crews. So people that were trading and then they got pirated, uh, just a pirate ship ran up on them, right? Pirates of the Caribbean, Jack Sparrow style, took over the ship, took on the sea crew, sold them into slavery, right? This is how that happened all the time. There were tons of people in slavery during this time. And most, here's the, here's the kick, most were actually ethnically similar. They actually probably looked really, really similar. Sometimes the slave was just a debtor. He just had maybe a debt or she just had maybe a debt that he or she couldn't pay. And as a result, the easiest way to overcome it uh, was almost like the ancient version of filing bankruptcy and just give yourself into slavery. Right? This is kind of what we're looking at. And while I hope you can see the difference in this ancient form of slavery and, and this more modern American idea of slavery that kind of derived from the English Empire X, Y, and Z, I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture here. Slaves were still slaves. It's one of the evils that has always seemed to be present among humanity. And in the first century, as I mentioned, slavery was almost just an everyday part of life. People of every race and ethnicity who were Roman citizens purchased and owned slaves, and they became a normal part of the backdrop uh, to everyone's main story. Again, more than a racial component, the slave class, made up of people from different ethnicities, different backgrounds, just formerly became the lowest class of society in the culture. They had fallen into the background, and they became nothing more, look at me and hear me, nothing more than just accessories to the story of their successful masters. That's what they were, just accessories in the story of the successful master, masters in that culture and that environment. No one would have paid attention to them. No one would have batted an eye if they were around because no one probably would even notice they were there. And that's what makes our text today so powerful. In the midst of that social climate, in the gathering of believers, which undoubtedly uh, there were slaves and slaveholders, because although salvation brings us to the feet of Jesus and makes us new, we have to, over time, grow in to the image of Christ. So there were undoubtedly still sinful actions like holding slaves in the body of Christ. And if you can imagine being in that room after hearing about wives, after hearing about husbands, after hearing about mothers, and hearing about fathers, and thinking that the conversation about godly households is finished, and then all of a sudden, the next thing you hear is the reader direct his attention to the back of the room where they all would have been the slaves lined up taking care of, of different things and looked and said now to slaves to slaves it may have been impossible for this small fledgling faith group called Christians or, or this one man named Paul to upend slavery in the first century in the Roman world. But Paul was determined in everything he did, even in these letters, to undermine it, to subvert it. In a simple pinstroke of saying, slaves, here's something for you. Here's something for you. In that simple pinstroke, the invisible became visible. You get what I'm saying? The forgotten in the society had been remembered. The silent for just a moment had gained a voice. And he tells them in this amazingly beautiful and powerful way, slaves, hear me, obey your earthly masters. 
and work hard, not just like someone's watching you, but all the time. Why? Because you've been made new by this Jesus. If you are a follower of this Jesus, you're not working for that earthly master. You now have a greater responsibility in your life than just serving him, than just serving her. You now work as unto God. In other words, if you've been redeemed by this Jesus, hear me, so is your work wherever you're doing it. If you have been redeemed by this Jesus, your work has also been redeemed by this Jesus. No matter where you're doing it, no matter what level of society you're doing it in, no matter the type of work you're doing, no matter if it's labor, if it's office, no matter if it's home based, if it's out of the house. If you've been redeemed by Jesus, the way you put your hand to the plow has also been redeemed and made new and given meaning. Your work matters. Whether a leader in the local Colossian government or a slave of the lowest order, your work matters. Whether staying at home with the kids, running a Fortune 500 company, working at McDonald's, going to school full time, anywhere in between, your work matters. It's meaningful. And maybe right now you're looking at me like, how? This doesn't make sense yet. That's probably the same question the slaves were asking. How is Paul saying that these slaves or even us in here are now working for God? Our work matters just because we're now followers of Jesus. And hear me, friend, it's because of God's design for work. Remember, this is one of the two things we're talking about today. God's design for work. Because Paul helping us, uh, because Paul is helping us see that Jesus is not just redeeming our lives. He's redeeming everything about our lives including redeeming God's design for work. What do you mean by God's design for work? Well, check out a text like Genesis 2, 4 through 5, which says these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. I want you to notice something. In the biblical story of creation, sin doesn't enter the picture until Genesis 3. But in Genesis 2, it's clear that a part of man's rhythm, humanity's rhythm in creation was to work. Before sin enters, humanity is still meant to build to work, to create, to cause things to, sp- to prosper. Friends, hear me. It's easy at times to believe that God never intended us to work hard. Right? We build in, in our imaginations this world uh, where God basically always wanted us to be retired. Right? No work, no worries. Yet what we see in Scripture is a totally different world than that. Scripture paints for us a world where God calls us to work and to work hard. Then uh, in Eden, if you, if, you, if you can grasp this idea, right, there was a sun in Eden. There was heat in Eden. The idea of creation in Eden at the beginning of the Bible is not different than our creation. It's our creation. It's the world we live in. There would have been moments where work was exhausting, where work was frustrating, or maybe the Adam and Eve or anyone else didn't feel like doing it. What made work different was not that it was magically easy or that people didn't have to work hard. What made work different in the beginning was that work was done in God's presence and for God's kingdom. In other words, work was different because it was done with God and it was done for God. 
to display the beauty of God's character to the world around them. That's what made God, that's what made work, I should say, different. It was taking the beauty of God's character, adopting it as our own, and then reflecting it to the rest of the world. God labored to create the world, so will I. Right? God gave himself and used his abilities to create the good creation that we see around us, then so will I. God worked until he himself looked at his work and said, that's just a good job. Right? What, I created that and it's good, then so will I. God rested from his work, set it aside and said, now it's time for me to recoup and to set the standard of work. So will I. Friends, we're called to work to reflect God and his character because that's what we were always created to do in every area of our life, including work. Because being in his presence for Adam and Eve, for the story of creation, for God's original design for work, meant understanding our worth, understanding our value, and then reflecting the character in God that we benefit from to those around us that need to see it, to the world around us that need to be reminded of it. Friend, listen to me. I want just everyone to get eyes on me as I say this. Your work was never meant to provide you identity and purpose. Your work was always meant to point you back to the one who gives you your identity and who gives you your purpose. That was always the point of your work. And it has always been the point of your work. That's the story of Genesis 1 and 2. That's God's great design for work, and it's beautiful. But then comes Genesis 3. Here comes this, what has been described, I think, like I've heard Matt Chandler, someone else say, like the most heartbreaking chapter in the Bible Right where sin enters the picture and humanity, hear me, is ripped away from God because of sin. And now we wander around deriving value from anything that we can. And one of the main sources of that is work. And so some of us work and it doesn't meet the standards that we set on ourselves or that others set on us. And so we begin uh, to get pushed down the class meter in our society. And others do well in their work and they're maybe killing this or that. And so they get moved up the class meter in society. And some are just born into their position of, in the class meter of society. And this is literally where atrocities like slavery begin to be birthed out. Right, because as people begin to derive value, it allows some to say, well, I must be better than them. And it causes some to say, well, they must be better than me. And all of a sudden, atrocities like saying, well, then couldn't I, who's better than you, technically own you? And all of a sudden, this sinful act of saying, maybe I can gain a measure of worth and gain a measure of value from this thing begins to cause destruction throughout God's creation. And yet now here is Paul saying, you're not subjected to that structure anymore. And in spite of all that, literally looking at a room full of people who have spent their entire life being told they're either great or they're either not good enough and building social structures in order to align with those ideas and those lies, Paul is writing a letter declaring to the whole room, you're not subject to that anymore. Right, The old way now has been restored and your sinful way has been done away with. You have a higher responsibility now and a higher authority. Why? Because Jesus has restored your work by restoring you to God. 
He's taken on your sin and restored you back to the presence of God and the kingdom of God. You are now no longer a slave, nor are you a master, nor are you a Greek, nor are you a Hebrew. You are now his son or his daughter fundamentally. Nothing beyond, nothing beneath, because there's nothing more that you could desire to be. That's who you are. Your role in society doesn't bring value to you. He does. The questions your heart asks while you're putting in work at your job or or at home or wherever you're doing it or in school about your value and your dignity and your identity now have been answered, not by your work, but by God. Who am I? You're his. What's my purpose? To know him and to love him and to be loved by him. Am I good enough? Jesus was good enough, so he made you good enough. Right. Your work now is meant to reflect and to point you back to the one who gives you your identity. The question is, are you allowing your work to point you to him or to point you to you? That's the question we wrestle with now because of the work of the gospel, because of the work of Jesus. The question we now answer is not, is this enough? Am I enough? It's is this work pointing me to me or pointing me to him? Which one is it? If it's you, hear me, yeah, meaningless, meaninglessness, you're going to struggle with that. You're going to struggle with that because there's always going to be the question of if you did enough or if, if what you did has enough umph behind it, enough skill behind it, enough momentum behind it, that it will make a difference. And if in your view, your work doesn't, then man, it must never mean anything. If it points to you, then yes, pride is going to be an issue because you'll consistently, again, look at the monument that we build of ourselves because of what we believe we have accomplished. And all of a sudden, the moment a crack forms on that monument, down comes us with our monument. If it points to us, then, man, we have some concerns. But hear me, if our work points us to him, the end result of your the end result of your your work won't be pride or meaningless, meaninglessness. Hear me, friend, it'll be worship. If yourself, yes, you might feel like you're struggling with purpose and never finding rest, but, but if your work is pointing you to God, then we're able to rest easy, trusting that God can do more with my effort and my skills and my gifts than I could do for myself or others on my own. Friend, your work matters. Hear me, look at me, your work matters. I'm going to go real old school and tell you to to look at a neighbor and be like, my work matters. All right, let's do it again, because we ran that kind of sloppily. Look at a neighbor and be like, my work matters. All right, I'm going to let y'all slide on that one, because we already did it twice, and I don't think I'm going to run it back a third time. But but man, next week, we're going to get better at that. We're going to start off the day with one of them. All right. Your work matters, friend, because you're his and your work points you back and others to him. Your job is not to make yourself whole with working. Your job is not to give yourself value by working. Your job is not to develop a sense of self by working. Your job is not to find your purpose by working. 
Your job is to fall into the arms of the one who provides everything we need. And then as a consequence, go out into the world and say, I'm free to work because I'm free uh, from the shame that you have tried to place on me through work. I'm going to reverse everything that you've told me about work and enter into society knowing that you or anyone else, my job, my boss, nothing, culture can tell me that I'm less or more because I already have everything that tells me about who I am. I'm here to try to show you who you are. That's what I'm here for. My job is not here so that I can derive what I need. My job, I already have what I need. My job is so that I can enter into this space and show you what you need and point you to him and say, and he's free for the taking because he's already done the work to redeem you and to draw you to himself. This is everything. If you work in an office, that's your job for your, for your, your person next to you in the cubicle. If you're a student, that's your job when it comes to the person sitting next to you in the class or on the Zoom meeting with you or whatever you're doing. If you're a mother or a father, that's your job when you're raising your kids. That's your job. Your job is to trust him, to believe him, to follow him. That's the call in work. That's God's call in work, to trust him. Right? God designed work for you to be pointed back to him and to point others to him but hear me the call he he has for us in working is when you're pointed back to me trust me that's the end result of looking back at me when your work points you back to me i just want you to trust me at that point trust me at that point think about in the text that 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 we read today it would have been extraordinarily hard as a slave who maybe had been tricked, who maybe had been sold, enslaved, who maybe had a decent life, who was some type of trader on the ocean, and all of a sudden, in the snap of a finger, uh, a ship pulled up, took your livelihood from you, took your freedom from you, and sold you into slavery. It would have been extraordinarily hard for that person to trust anything anything. I understand that trust can be hard. To just give yourself over to believing that God will take care of you, will take care uh, of your work. Uh, when work is in front of you and it's difficult and the environment that you're in is challenging and you've had situations like this happen before and things that you don't necessarily love and things that have hurt you and things that have frustrated you have happened and you're sitting there and you're like, man, I'm here again. Yet God assures us and invites us to trust him again and again and again. Think, look, at, look at verse 24. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. Are you concerned, friend, that you won't get out of work what you're putting in to work? He's going to provide an inheritance to you because he's made you his. Don't worry. He's got it. Look at verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrongdoing he has done. And there is no favoritism. He even understands that you don't have bad bosses at times. Right, he gets it. And even in the midst of, of, of having bad bosses, the job is still go and reflect me to the bad boss. And don't worry about him. I'll take care of the wrongdoer. I will make right the things that are wrong. I will take care of that person. 
But man, if your work is, is working unto God and you are pointing yourself and others back to him and that bad boss who's, who's also been hurt and who's also of the burden and pain of sin looks at you and one day says, I need what that person has, what a glorious day it'll be. He'll handle it. Friends, these are the rhythms of working in light of the gospel. To understand God's design for work in your life. That you're not to derive purpose, meaning, value from it. But it's meant to point you to the one that actually gives you value, gives you meaning, gives you purpose. And to trust him in the midst of it when it's difficult. And when it's difficult, hear me friends, it's tempting to grab our work back and be like, all right, what does this mean for me again? But in the midst of difficulty, when again, it feels like you may not get what you are earning, when it feels uh, like the environment is belittling. Uh, and hear me, that's not to say that you are meant to stick in bad environments, right? Uh, hey, if that 2.8 years is, is you and it's because you have a bad boss, then maybe, maybe you are supposed to move. No one's saying that. But in, even in the midst of, uh, of moments where you can't move, to trust God and say, you, you take care of me, not my job. You care for me, not my work. You provide for me. I trust you. Today I want to finish up by asking you two questions. By simply asking you two questions. The first is, where do you find value in your work? Where do you find the value of your work? That may be, what I, I don't know what I wrote down, but uh, what I wrote down back there for the slide, but, but where do you find value in your work? Is it, is, in what it does, is it in what it does for you? Is it in how much you get paid? Or maybe the status it provides? Or do you find value in your work? In how it reflects God's character? And how it points you back to God? Friend, if that's how you derive, if that's how you define value in your work, nothing you do is pointless. Everything you do is meaningful. Everything. From the way you brush your teeth, to the way you drive the bus, to the way you raise your kids, to the way you work at the office, to the last minute typos that you fix on your paper, every single little thing, not because it derived, not because it in itself is so powerful, beautiful, world-changing, but because each and every moment points you back to him and says, I, I have you. This is meant to reflect my character. The second question is this, how do you judge the fruit of your work? In other words, how do you judge the results? Again, is it by how much money you make or the praise you get at work? Is, are those the results you're going for? Or is it your own trust? Is it your trust in God that he can make something beautiful and something meaningful through what you're doing? in your life and in the lives of others that are around you. Uh, friends, it's my prayer today that God would, would give us a deep sense of encouragement uh, this week as it pertains to our work uh, and that he would help us see that we're called to give ourselves to our work, 100%. We're called to work hard. But more so, that what we do is powerful because it points us and others back to Jesus. And, do, and builds and, and crafts worship and trust in our hearts. Uh, let's go ahead and pray to finish up uh, as we move forward today. Father, thank you so much for um, your word. Thank you for the fact that you made us to work. You made us 
um, to know you, to trust you. Um, yes, the world and society and culture around us begins to tell us to redefine the work that you've given us, to tell us that this is what gives us value and dignity, that this is what gives us worth. Yet, Father, because of the gospel of Jesus, we have been reunited to you as our great creator. We have been reunited to the one who gives us purpose, to the one who gives us meaning. And now we are able um, with the angels of heaven to declare that you are good, that we are whole, that we work not as unto man, but we work as unto God, building his kingdom and building your kingdom um, for people to see and worship for eternity, inviting them to know you and trust you as well. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.